0: Last week, um, I introduced an an analogy likening D-Day to Easter Sunday. Uh, On D-Day, a decisive battle was won that guaranteed uh, the end of World War II. And in much the same way, on Easter uh, Sunday, God won a decisive victory against sin and Satan uh, and death itself. On Easter Sunday, he showed us where history is heading. often it seems that everything um, is going to hell, that the world is just falling apart and that it's beyond hope. And no doubt it appeared that way when Jesus was nailed to a cross and then shoved into a tomb. And those were dark days. However, when Jesus stepped out of a tomb three days later, what we come to see is that the tyranny of sin and Satan and death is short-lived. It will only last for so long. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Right? Hope is coming. A final victory is around the bend. And tonight, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about final judgment. I want to talk about the end of the war. The E-Day. Now, as scary as it may sound, final judgment is something that you really, really want. And I'm going to explain to you why that's the case and how that's so. But point number two is that when you seek uh, refuge in Jesus' first work, you don't have to fear his second. Okay? And again, I will explain how uh, and why that's the case. But first, as scary as it may sound, you really do want there to be a day of judgment. A day of justice. If there is no day of justice, there is no day of judgment, that means only one of two things. Either there is no God to execute final judgment, or two, there is a God, but he simply doesn't want to execute justice, or can't. And either way, if there is no final judgment, Injustice reigns, and evil carries the day. And that's a horrible prospect. Every single day, evil things happen. People taking people's things, people taking people's lives. Every single day, people are robbed of their basic human rights. Every single day, billions suffer abuse and live in a constant state of fear. Every single day, those who perpetrate crimes against humanity appear to get away with it. Two days ago, 64 people were killed in a shopping mall fire in Russia. Most of the casualties were kids. This was no ordinary fire. People died because bribes were paid, so a mall with no working fire alarms and blocked fire escapes could pass its fire inspection. People died because of corner cutting, corruption, evil, and injustice. Yesterday, I heard a Russian father interviewed on the radio. This dad lost two kids in that fire. And he said, I was lucky. You're like, how could you be lucky? He says, I was lucky because at least I got to identify my kids. Most parents, all they had was half the skull of their child or an arm with some of that kid's clothing on it. Now, I had to turn the radio off at that point. Because the pain of what I was hearing and the horror of what I was hearing was just too much for me to bear. But if there is no God, what happened in Russia two days ago is life in a nutshell. Injustice pays, and people suffer. The end. In 1971, a man named Idi Amin became president of Uganda after a bloody coup. Once in power, Idi Amin started wiping out political enemies, religious leaders, journalists, artists, lawyers, and members of various ethnic groups. During his eight-year presidency, Idi Amin murdered close to 500,000 people. Now, do you know how many people that is? If you filled Patrick Gymnasium to max capacity 155 times, that's how many moms, dads, sons, and daughters Idi Amin killed in eight years. Patrick Gymnasium filled to the max 155 times. That's what 500,000 people looks like, feels like. After eight years in office, Idi Amin flew to Saudi Arabia, where the royal family allowed him sanctuary and paid him a generous stipend so long as he stayed out of politics. The country he left was in ruins, hundreds of thousands of people gone, but Idi Amin, well, he got to spend the last 25 years of his life in a plush Saudi Arabian hotel, living in the lap of luxury like a millionaire. That, Vince Gilligan says, galls me to no end. Do you all know who Vince Gilligan is? He's the director, the creator of the hit TV show Breaking Bad. Has anybody watched the show Breaking Bad? Okay. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the show, it's about a high school chem teacher named Walter White who is diagnosed with cancer. And in order to pay his med bills and sort of secure his Family's financial future, he starts making and then selling crystal meth. His product is really, really good. Business is really, really hot. And slowly but surely, Walter White is transformed from a buttoned-up chem teacher to a murderous, narcissistic drug lord. Now, according to Vince Gilligan, there are two main themes to his show, Breaking Bad. The first theme is that you don't become evil overnight. We don't teleport into evil. We walk into it. Becoming evil is not a dramatic event that happens all at once at some season finale. Becoming evil, becoming hard of heart, is something subtle that occurs one episode at a time, one lie at a time, one small step at a time. We walk into it. A second theme of the show Breaking Bad is that our actions have consequences. And what intrigues me is that Gilligan wanted to make a show like this because he wants to live in a world like this. As he puts it, I can, I can stand the thought that there's no heaven, But I don't know that I can stand the thought that there's no hell. Because, you know, where's Hitler then? Where's Pol Pot? There's got to be some kind of payback. This is the tension that Vince Gilligan lives with. And maybe it's the tension that you live with too. See, Vince Gilligan wants justice. But philosophically, theologically, as an atheist, justice for him, like real justice for him, is fiction. It's found only in TV shows like Breaking Bad, and even then, that's a stretch. Rape, murder, cheat, steal, die a millionaire, or live in poverty, sacrifice your life to save orphans in a Calcutta slum—it makes no difference in the end. Idi Amin, Mother Teresa, are in the same place. If there is no God, there is no justice. And that, Gilligan says, is what keeps him up at night. That is what galls him to no end. It's not the thought of hell that disturbs him so much. It's the thought that there is none. Vince Gilligan really wants there to be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. And for the reasons just mentioned, you do too. But maybe you're thinking, I'm not an atheist like Vince Gilligan. I believe in God. I just don't believe in hell. Right? I believe that when we die, we all go to heaven. And this is an argument I hear articulated a lot on this college campus. Right? I believe in God. I just don't believe in hell. But there are some problems with this view. Okay. First of all, Jesus would completely disagree with you. First of all, Jesus talks more about hell than any other person in the Bible. He's unequivocal about it. Hell is real. And Jesus insists that the reason he came to earth was that so you and I don't have to go there. That's why he talks about it so much. If Jesus says that there is a hell and you say that there isn't, I'm sorry. I'm trusting Jesus and not you. Okay? But there are a couple other reasons why believing in God but not believing in hell is problematic. Okay, if there is a God but there is no hell, God is not all that serious about sin. Okay, if there is a God and there is no hell, God's not that serious about sin. See, on June 17th, 2015, a, a man named Dylan Roof entered into a Charleston church, and he shot up the place. He killed nine African Americans that had gathered there that day to study the Bible. And in custody, Roof said that he did not identify with his victims and that he did not care. He had zero remorse. Well, if the judge trying his case said, murder, schmurder, everyone who comes into my courtroom gets to walk out free, you would think, that's not a good judge, I don't respect that judge. That's a bad judge. And if you wouldn't tolerate it with a human judge, why would you tolerate it with a divine one? One of the most important theologians of our day is a guy named Miroslav Volf, who teaches theology at Yale. In one of his most popular works, Exclusion and Embrace, Volf talks about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is God's holy anger at sin and his fierce commitment to stamp it out, to stamp out evil from this, from this earth. And Wolf writes in this book, and I quote, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? But then Wolf answers his own question. God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. And that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. Think back to the Rwandan genocide where in the span of 100 days, 800,000 people were hacked to death with machetes. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness. As though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath. I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful. And I want you to pay attention now because this is his most important point. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. If God were not angry at injustice and did and, and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God is not worthy of your worship. Wolf is saying that it makes no difference, if it, if it makes no difference how you live and what you believe, if everybody gets into heaven, as it were, God's not good. And you shouldn't worship him. A God like that does not take sin seriously. But thirdly and finally, a God like that doesn't take free will and love very seriously. It's important that you know that God loves you. I will tell you that every day. God loves you way more than you love him. He does. He's always open to you, He's always ready to receive you. However, you're not always open to Him. What the Bible says and what your life communicates to God and may be communicating even now you say to Him, Leave me alone. Get your hands off of me. I want to do things my own way. A Christian is someone who doesn't want to do that anymore. Who recognizes the foolishness, who recognizes the foolishness and the destructiveness of rejecting God. Who wants to be near him and not far away from him anymore. But there are those who go through their entire life hating God wanting nothing to do with him. Leave me alone. Get your hands off of me. It's my life to live. And this attitude towards God, leave me alone, get your hands off of me, is ultimately what hell is. Hell is the choice to live without God, to do whatever you want, to have his hands off you, spread out for all of eternity. It is that decision writ large. God doesn't send people to hell so much as give it to them. God doesn't send people to hell so much as give it to them. If you want to live an autonomous, independent life, get your hands off me, leave me alone. You can, scary enough, get what you wish. The choice to love God or to hate him is a real choice. And because it's a real choice, hell is for real. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And this is something, friends, that you actually want. You actually want this. This is good news. We want God to hate evil. We want God to punish it. We want God to make wrong things right. We do. But the prospect of justice, indeed the promise of it, scares us a little bit too. We want it, but we fear it at the same time. We fear it because we fear being judged. We fear it because we know that we all fall short of God's glory. We know that we are sinners, guilty as charged. And this leaves us in a precarious position. We want justice. We just don't want to be the ones that are judged. We want God to destroy evil, but we don't want to be destroyed ourselves. Right? Does that make sense? Well, John 8 tells the story of a bunch of Pharisees and scribes who catch a woman in the act of adultery. They drag her to Jesus and they throw her down at his feet and they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses says, in fact, he commands us to stone such woman. So what do you say? Jesus starts riding in the ground. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let's quiet for a little bit. And in the beginning with the oldest, down to the youngest, they all start to walk away so that only Jesus and the woman are left standing there. A guilty woman and an innocent man. Where are they, Jesus asks. Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she says. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Sinful woman escapes judgment. And it's not because she's innocent. And it's not because adultery is no big deal. I mean, in God's eyes, adultery is a capital offense. Frankly, all sin is. According to the scriptures, the wages of sin is death. You sin, you deserve to die. So what does her being set free mean? Is justice abrogated? Is God not serious about sin after all? Well, it turns out he's deadly serious about it. God takes sin so seriously that he punishes it to the extreme. But here's the twist. God hates sin and he punishes it to the max, but God loves you. Which is why he's willing to be nailed to a cross and to bear sin's punishment for you in your place. See, he was crushed for our iniquities. He doesn't crush us for ours. He is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Remember Jesus said, let him who's without sin be the first to cast a stone. Jesus was the only one in that crowd without sin that day. The only one who could throw a stone. And yet he didn't. He doesn't. He doesn't stone this woman to death. And he doesn't stone you to death. Because his entire mission, when he came the first time... It was a search and rescue mission, not a seek and destroy mission. He came to die for sinners, not to put them in the ground. The reason why she and he and we, or she and you and me, can walk away freed men and women is not because we are innocent. And it's not because Jesus doesn't care about the demands of the law. Right? He does. He cares about justice way more than you and I do. But the reason why guilty parties like you and me can walk away freed men and women is because the one who could condemn us, he's joyfully willing to be condemned in our place. As tonight's passage reads, Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's verse 24. Not to sacrifice the blood of another, not to perform, not to sacrifice some goat or some lamb like priests were doing annually on the Day of Atonement. Verse 25. Instead, Jesus made a once and for all sacrifice, something that does not need to be repeated. He laid down his own life. He himself was the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his once-for-all sacrifice was good enough and powerful enough to cleanse the sins of everyone, past, present, and future, all around the globe. Verse 26. This is why he came the first time. Verse 28. But, again, in verse 28, it says he will appear a second time. And when he comes again a second time, it's not going to be to save us from sin's penalty— he did that already. When he comes a second time, it is to save us from sin's presence altogether. To finish it. To end the game. To wipe it out. V-E day. Game over. Now why is it necessary for Jesus to come into, in two stages? You no, know, why not do this all at once? Well, come on. Think about this. Okay? If God comes in final final judgment to rid the world entirely of sin and evil, bearing a sword before he bears a cross, where would that leave you? Where would that leave me? Screwed. Defenseless. In the dust. As it is written, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Nobody. Nobody. Right. If Jesus, if, if Jesus comes and in the first round is just going to rid evil once and for all, he's getting rid of us. However, by coming the first time, not to crush sin, but to be crushed for it, by bearing the sins of many in the person of Jesus, God gives us a way out. He gives us a way out. Jesus is to us, friends, a shield. A shield bears the brunt of something so that the person behind it can stay safe. Jesus is to us a rock of refuge. Something to hide in, something to hide under when God comes in final judgment. All who look to Jesus, who hide themselves in him, who wash away the stain of their sins with his blood... They have nothing to fear and nobody to fear on that great day. Back in 2012, on a Friday afternoon, a series of tornadoes tore through the town of Henryville, Indiana. A woman named Stephanie Decker was at home with her young son and daughter, huddled in the basement as the tornado headed for her home. And just before the storm hit, she covered her children with a blanket to shield them from debris. Then she reached around and she held them tight, adding her own weight, her own body weight, uh, to the protection of the blanket. As the storm hit, it devastated the house and it sent wave after wave of debris into the body of Stephanie Decker beams, pillars, and furniture slammed into her body repeatedly. Seven ribs were broken and two steel beams fell on her legs almost completely severing them. And there was a brief calm followed by another storm that ripped through her home again, and again her body absorbed the brunt of the debris. Stephanie Decker would survive the storm, but she lost both of her legs. And you ask, what about her kids? Well, because she absorbed the fury of the storm, her children emerged from that storm out from underneath that blanket without a scratch. This is akin to what God did for us in the person of Jesus. Jesus. He bore the sins of many. He absorbed the wrath of God in our place. He took in the fury. Because he was condemned, we can emerge from underneath that cover free. But listen to me. Listen. You need to seek refuge in him. You need to hide yourself in him. God has given you a shield. He wants to cover you like like Stephanie Decker wants to cover her kids. But you have to let him. You must hide behind. You must hide yourself in this salvation named Jesus. Because if you don't, You will be subject to the storm that will be God's return. You can pass judgment on that day. You can. But it's not by becoming a better, stronger, more moral person. The way that you're going to pass judgment on that day is by admitting your weakness, by confessing your sinfulness by admitting your need for help. And then, of course, by running to and seeking cover in the person of Jesus. Do not put this off. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not say, get your hands off me, leave me alone, I can do this by myself. Please receive him. Please believe him. Please find your rest and refuge in him today. Let's pray.